No one pays you the flight attendants when they're giving the safety announcement. They stand up there and everyone puts their headphones on and they ask for your attention, but really no one's paying attention. And for the most part, that really doesn't matter because the statistics and the odds of you dying or even getting in any kind of accident on an airplane are really, really small. You're far more likely to get in an accident in your own car and die that way. So probably not a big deal that you're not paying attention during the flight announcements at the beginning of the flight, unless you happen to be Southwest Airlines Flight 1380 which in the middle of their flight suffered a catastrophic failure of engine one, exploding in midair, several thousand feet in the air, after the loud explosion and uh, quaking of the cabin had, uh, had, had minimized, the oxygen masks dropped down from their compartments in front of everybody uh, in their seats. Now, what do you think happened at that moment? Of course, everyone sees the, uh, the, the oxygen masks and they begin to put them on. One passenger began to film himself because he thought the plane was going down. So he Facebook lives the event in order to say goodbye to his family and friends. No kidding. I'm not playing the video. That's not the important thing here. But I want you to pay close attention to the, the, the screen grab here. Notice the way they're wearing the masks. They're wearing them wrongly. Which means this, if you know anything about flying, you know that when you're really high in the air, the oxygen is thin and, and not available, not readily available. That's why the mask dropped down. You need to put the mask over your nose and your mouth and pull the strap tightly over your face so that the oxygen reaches you. Otherwise, if you don't do that, you can stand the chance of passing out in the middle of the, the crash. And when you hit the ground, if, it's, if you need to get out of the airplane quickly, you're dead because you're blacked out because you didn't wear your mask properly. Well, in this flight, they made it down safely, except for one. They suffered one casualty, one loss, but everyone else made it out safe and sound. See, the problem here is that no one knows when the plane's going down. You don't know. You just get in there and you hope for the best. And for the most part, you're rewarded for that. The trouble is, if those passengers knew that that flight was going down and the lady says, or the guy says, listen, can I get your attention, please? I'm going to do a flight announcement and give you safety instructions. Everybody would be wrapped with attention. Well, they wouldn't get on the airplane faster. That's true. But if they did get on the airplane and they knew it was going down, they would be wrapped in their attention. They'd be listening to every syllable. They'd be uh, practicing, you know, okay, it goes like this, and I'm going to pull like that, it goes over my nose, and you would be practicing. You'd be studying the diagram in front of you saying, okay, if the plane goes down in water, I, I go under my seat, I pull out my, my life preserver, I pull it when I get in the water. You'd be memorizing every single word and syllable that came from their mouths. This is a little like the message tonight, in that I, your flight attendant, and making you aware that the plane of your life at some point is going to go down. And you need to be ready with the instructions on how to survive that crash. We're going to go back in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, you might remember, we just finished chapter 1 last week. We just said Jesus is superior to the angels. Tonight we're going to say now, okay, because of that message, because Jesus is the greater revelation, who is greater than the angels, what are we supposed to do with that? This passage in Hebrews chapter 2 is a hard passage. It's going to challenge you. And if I do my job well, it's going to challenge you in somewhat of a painful way. 
Because he's going to say, look, you need to be on your guard and pay close attention to this message. There are some messages that you're going to hear that you need to pay close attention to. This is one of those messages. Just like I were to say to you, hey, the plane's going down. Be ready. Here's how you prepare. You wear your oxygen mask this way. You put on your life preserver this way. This is one of those messages. And essentially, if you think about it, here's how I want to put it. Because Christ and his message are superior, we must be carefully attentive to. We must carefully attend to his words or suffer calamitous, disastrous consequences. This is my message tonight. This is the message of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I need you to buckle your seatbelt and maybe pull out your helmet, shoulder pads, because if I do my job well, you might walk away feeling a little bit beat up, but it's on purpose because I'm hoping that the bruising will lead you to the one who heals all bruises. I want you to focus tonight on Christ and his word, and I want you to pay special, close attention. A failure to do this puts you in a very precarious, dangerous situation. So listen close, and let's jump into Hebrews chapter 2, starting not at verse 1. We're actually going to start at verses 3 and 4. We're going to work in the passage backward, because verse 1 is kind of the punch. It's the point of the message. Uh, but we're going to start backward and build our way up back to verse 1. So we're going to start at chapter 2, verse 3, in the second half of the verse. That's what it means when I say letter B. Starting at chapter 2, verse 3, letter B. It says this. It was declared at first by the Lord. What was the it? Well, the it is the message. The message of salvation was declared at first by the Lord. And that's talking about Jesus. And... It was attested to us by those who heard. So now you're seeing a chain of command here. It was declared at first by Jesus, and then it was attested to us, that audience of the Hebrews, by those who heard. Those who heard firsthand would have been the apostles, Peter, James, John, and the rest. And so he's saying, look, we heard it, the author of Hebrews, from the apostles. We heard by those, uh, we, we, we had it attested to us by those who heard. Verse four, while... God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so what you have here in this very first passage here is uh, essentially the author, the preacher saying, look, this message is not just any old message. It is a reliable message that you should pay close attention to. He's going to get there. He's saying this, this message is reliable. This is not the telephone game where you play with your friends and you, someone says something and you pass it to the next person. It's funny and it becomes this nonsensical statement at the end. He says, no, this message started with Jesus. Jesus gave it to his disciples, the apostles, and then they declared it to us, the audience of the time, Hebrews. And then God himself also bore testimony to the message's certainty by performing signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, the message is utterly reliable. The point, let's start with this. Point number one, trust the Bible's reliability. Young person, it's no hyperbole to say your Christian faith rises and falls on the truthfulness of the word of God. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because the Bible tells you what it means to be a Christian. And in fact, if you're a critic of Christianity, you're going to point to the Bible as the source of your criticism because ultimately this is what Christians are looking toward. We're looking at the Bible to say, how should we live? How should we speak? How should we marry? How should we save our money or not save our money? Everything's going to rise and fall on the Bible. 
So if you're not a Christian, you should know why you don't believe the Bible to be true. If you are a Christian, you should know why the Bible is true and utterly reliable. Now, we could take this a lot of different ways. I could take this and talk about the manuscript evidence, and we've done that before. That's not going to be my tack tonight. Tonight, we're going to look at the, the, uh, the way that the, the author of Hebrews develops this, this uh, chain of reliability. Imagine this. You go home, and your sibling, your brother or sister, says to you, hey, dad said to meet him at the local car dealership, he's going to buy you a brand used Honda Civic. And of course, you're, you're, you're elated. This is your dream car. Four cylinders, 105 horsepower. I mean, it's got all the fixings. It's got air conditioning, a power window. It's got a, just one, a, a latch that opens the trunk. It's just got the fixings. You, this is the car you've been dreaming of. <laughs> but he's your brother, or it's your sister. And so you, you naturally question the reliability of your sibling and say, really, dad said that? I don't know. I don't know if I can trust you, younger brother or sister. And so they say, oh, you know what? I, he thought that you might not trust me. So here's a, a letter that got, dad got notarized, and it's in his handwriting, and he wrote it to you. Dear Colin, meet me at the car dealership. I'm going to buy you a brand used Honda Civic. And it has his signature, and it's in his handwriting. And so you take the letter, and you're like, ah, it looks pretty good. It's close to his hand. It is his handwriting, as far as I can tell. But this can be faked. How can I know that this was really from dad? And so your younger brother or sister finally says, man, okay, here's what I got. One last thing. He pulls out his phone and he shows you, here's the video of dad communicating this to me. Because I said, hey, dad's not going to believe, dad, he's not going to believe me. Let me record you. And so he's got this video of uh, Colin's dad saying, son, meet me at the local car dealership. I'm going to buy you a brand used Honda Civic. But then you start thinking to yourself, well, I don't know, today's technology, you could so easily deep fake this. I don't know if this is real. Is that really his voice? It sounds a little tinny. I'm not so sure. This is a little like how it is with God's authenticity of his word. There's a lot of things that go into the way that God proved his word to be true. And at every point in the process, you can say, I mean, really though, is that is that?" Is that really the way God, you can do that. You can challenge every line of evidence God provides for you. But in the same way that you have to really go a long way around to deny that evidence, it's the same way that your brother or sister saying, hey, dad said meet him at the car dealership. No, did he really? Can I trust that signature? Is that really him on the video? This is how God works with us. God goes out of his way to communicate to us so that you can be confident. Look, I'm real. Jesus is my son. Listen to the word and, and know that I'm communicating to you. He gives us three lines of evidence. Notice here, again, it was declared to us at first by the Lord. So Jesus is first. Second layer of, so if you think about a courtroom, Jesus would be the defendant. Jesus is taking the stand and he's communicating. I am the son of God. I'm here to save humanity. I can prove it. I've raised the dead. I've healed the blind. I've, I've given health to the sick. And so he's on the defendant stand. And then he pulls out two witnesses. Witness number one is actually 12 witnesses minus Judas plus Paul. And those witnesses say, Jesus is who he says he is. He's the Lord. He's the, he's the master. We saw his works. In fact, John chapter one says, we got to hold him. We got to touch him. He is the word of God. He is the, he is the creator. He's the one who puts it all together. So you have 12 witnesses and the author of Hebrews talks about them as one. And then there's another witness who takes a stand. It's God the father himself saying, okay, 
this is my son. And I'm going to prove it to you in these three ways. So you have this chain of command. Here's why we can trust the Bible's reliability. First, uh, Jesus' message was falsifiable. As Jesus takes the, the witness stand, he's the defendant. His message could have been falsified. Now, if you have a belief that doesn't have any way of being falsified, you have a false belief. Does that make sense? If I tell you, look, I believe that the, the, the sky is made of cotton candy, you would be able to say, okay, well, Pastor Rod, if we take you in an airplane, you could easily see that it's not made of cotton candy. And I would just fold my hands over and say, no, I don't care what you show me. Well, Pastor Rod, what can we do to help you see the sky is not made of cotton candy? And I say, nothing. I have faith, cotton candy. If my belief isn't falsifiable, that means it's not a true belief. It's not genuine in that there's no way for me to understand or validate whether it's true or false. Jesus' message, however, was falsifiable. Let me give you one example. If, if any critics of Jesus wanted to prove that he was a false teacher, they only needed to do one thing. What one thing would that have been? There's several answers you could give, but what one thing could they have done to prove Jesus was a false teacher? Got an answer in your head at least? Here's, a, here, here's an answer I, I would give to you. Show me Jesus' body. Jesus prophesied throughout his ministry, destroy this temple and I'm going to raise it up. Kill me and I will be resurrected. Can't touch this, you know. I'm going to raise from the dead. If anybody could have produced Jesus' body, our religion would be worthless. You and I would be participating in a religion that would make no sense. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We are of most people to be pitied. People should look down on us, rightly so, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Jesus' message was falsifiable. If you prove that he was a liar by not rising from the dead, great. Christianity is false. Believe whatever you want to believe. Whatever makes you a better person, fine. His message was falsifiable, but it was not falsified. Jesus said to, to Pilate in John 18, when uh, Pilate asked him, so he says, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus was all about truth. And his message was falsifiable. What this does for us is help us to see, okay, the defendant is trustworthy because he could have been proven false. In fact, when he was put in a kangaroo court, the Jews were looking for evidence to prove him to be a sinner. And could they produce any evidence? No, they could not. So Jesus, uh, although having the opportunity to falsify his, his information, never happened. Jesus is trustworthy. We continue on. That's the first part, declared by the Lord and then attested to us by those who heard. And that, of course, as I said already, is the disciples. Now, I, I want to point, point one thing out to you. The apostles who were Jesus' closest confidants. He had a circle of three, uh, Peter, James, and John. And then among them, he had the larger circle of the others. These guys were cowering and afraid of being caught. Remember, uh, Peter himself de denied Jesus when it mattered most. But at the end of their lives, what's most important to realize is that these guys ended up dying for the very thing that they were previously afraid of. They were afraid of being known as Christians. Uh, Peter denied Christ to a, a, a servant girl. A little girl asked him, aren't you one of his uh, disciples? And he said, no, I don't know the man. I, I blankety blank don't know the man. He, he, he issues curses on himself. But these very same men who were previously afraid became all of them, as, as church history tells us, they became martyrs. 
they ended up dying for this very message. Now, as I told you before, you should know this. If I've taught you well, I've taught you this. Dying for something doesn't make it true, right? The guys that crashed into the World Trade Center died for something. But just because you die for it doesn't make it true. But what it does do is give you pause and say, okay, there's sincerity behind the message. What is the message? The disciples died for this message, and they never died having rejected it. Of course, one of the things you might ask, well, why'd they really die? Maybe you might say, maybe these guys were in it for the money. They could have become wealthy, or maybe they were looking to have a, a harem of women following them and becoming, you know, uh, very prominent in that arena. And furthermore, maybe we, they really were looking for power and authority over a, a large group of people. The problem with that is that these men did not die with money. They never died having their coffers or their wallets or their bank accounts filled with Bitcoin and drachma or anything else. So money could not have been something they were chasing after because he also taught against that. They said, in fact, those who do have money, they should share it and be generous with it. Well, what about sex? Well, first of all, they taught against being sexually promiscuous. Paul railed against the idolatry that happened in the temples. He said, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom. Jesus taught against it. They taught against it. And as far as we know, they never really succeeded in that department. They weren't ladies' men having women follow them around. So that doesn't seem to be the most plausible. Well, what about power and authority? These men must have had massive influence among the first century Christians. That would be true, but not the kind of power that was manipulative or a power that exploited people. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5, the very guy who denied Jesus said, uh, the kind of leadership that pastors should display is humble, serving others, doing it willingly and not begrudgingly. So power doesn't seem to be a, a reliable indicator either. These men then, as far as we can tell, died with a testimony about who Jesus was and what he did to the very end. Legend, maybe church history better said, church history even suggests that Peter died in the same way Jesus died in a Roman crucifixion. Thomas died by being stabbed. Uh, John, as you know, died by being boiled. Actually, he didn't die. They sent him to the island of Patmos because he, the boiling didn't kill him. These guys died saying, Jesus is true, the message is true, turn and trust him. The Bible is reliable because Jesus' message was falsifiable. The apostles died for this message. And lastly, God confirmed this message with his signature. One of the cool things I like about physical books maybe one of the only cool things about physical books, is that you can go get the author to sign the book. Uh, I don't have many of those. I would like them, though. There's some authors that I really would appreciate having their signature on the book. It's fun, you know. Uh, but, in fact, I think one of the few books I have that does have a signature is Pastor Mike's book. <laughs> he signed it for me. So it's cool. It's cool to have that because it essentially says, look, I wrote this book. It's my property, and you get to use it. That's really cool. What is God's signature? What is God's signature move? Well, it says here, God bore witness. His signature is signs. Sig, sign, signs, signature. His signature is signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You want to know what God's signature is? It's the miraculous. It is God doing incredible things through these people. And, 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 and furthermore, to add to this, the apostles are some of those people that he performed these miraculous works through. Here's why this is important. God confirming his message with signs and wonders is consistent with how he did this in the Old Testament. Let me just quickly point this out to you. In the book of Exodus, you have the saving event that Old Testament Israel would always look back to. When they wrote their Psalms, they would look back to the saving event of God taking them out of Egypt. And so God performed signs and wonders through this event 
And he essentially said, look, this is me. I'm delivering you. How do I know? Well, I'm going to perform the miraculous that no human being could do. In the New Testament, when God sends Jesus, you would expect that with a major salvific event, God would do something very similar. And that he did. Jesus performs miracles. God performs miracles through Christ and his ministry in the book of Acts of the apostles. God performs signs and wonders. So this is God's imprimatur, as Pastor Mike likes to say. It's his signature move. When God does signs and wonders to get your attention, he's saying, look, pay attention to what's happening here. Essentially, these things certify, authenticate, validate God's message. When your phone looks at you, it uses your facial features and your structures to open up the device. If someone else's face goes in front of your phone, it should not, unless you program their face into it, it should not open your phone. Your phone authenticates your person by your face. God authenticates his message by the miraculous. He helps you to see, look, this is me speaking to you by demonstrating the miraculous. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Rod, that's a really good point. I haven't seen you or anyone else raise the dead recently. Touche. Haven't done that today. But that doesn't mean that we can't still look at God's record of these events and see with a high degree of certainty that God has communicated in his message. Now, all of this is stuff that you probably have heard before, but this is vitally important to the next point. Because the whole reason, verses 3 and 4 there, are to give you confidence when God speaks in his word, it is trustworthy. If God is trustworthy in his word, then what does that mean? Verses 2 through 3a. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 3a. It says this, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do you get what's happening here? Let me, let me point something to your attention, okay? I, uh, the message declared by angels. This is referring to the Old Testament, okay? The Old Testament is a message that was mediated by the angels, and the author, the preacher, says, look, the message given to them in the Old Testament was reliable, so reliable and so trustworthy, in fact, every transgression or disobedience, that means every time you sinned against the word that was revealed, it received a just retribution. There was punishment that went along with any infractions against the word of God. So if you think about the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which some of you guys are going to, in fact, I hope you guys read a little bit tonight. God said, if you obey me, here's the blessings that are going to happen. It's good things. There's going to be vineyards, and there's going to be food, and there's going to be milk and honey and all these wonderful things. He says, but if you disobey me, here are the curses that will ensue. And he lays out a long list. One of those curses for disobedience to God was cannibalism. They will eat their own young because of their disobedience to God. Now, God doesn't say, look, I'm going to make you do this. God says, the results of your sin will be the curse of cannibalism. And if you know anything about Israel's history, this, in fact, did happen more than once. And what's worse, Israel also burned their kids at the altar of Molech. I, I showed this picture to you before where you had this statue of this god called Molech who was burning hot. And history suggests that his hands were extended like this. He was a fertility god of sorts. And so Israel, in order to protect their fertility for the future, 
would put their newborn babies on this burning hot altar, thereby killing their babies. And they did this. This was a direct consequence of their rejection of God's word and his covenant. And so, in verse 2, it says, this message was reliable. God gave them the law. God gave them the covenant. And when they rejected that covenant, they transgressed it or they disobeyed it. They received a just retribution. There was a right punishment as a result of that. And so then he says in verse 3 then, we're now in the New Testament. We have God's word. We have Christ who died for us in our place. How shall we escape? Escape what? God's retribution and punishment because of our disobedience. How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation offered in Christ? This is a big deal. Now remember, I'm telling you, because Christ and his message are superior, we must carefully attend to his words or suffer the consequences. This is what I'm talking about. If we take his word lightly, if we don't allow ourselves to hear what God's word says and to respond to it as we should, it's us neglecting the great salvation that he offers. Point number two, I don't want you to trifle with God's grace. I don't want you to take his grace lightly. I don't want you to think of God's grace as your get-out-of-jail-free pass of I can do whatever I want, and Jesus, because he's a great Savior, will forgive my sin. I don't want you, if you're a Christian, to sin and be okay with that. If you're a Christian, I don't want you to think, well, Jesus paid it all on the cross, praise God. When I sin, it's not that big a deal because Jesus paid it all. It is a big deal. Jesus did pay it all, but it's still a big deal. If you're a non-Christian, I have special words for you, and we'll get to that in a second. But I need you all to recognize God is a God not to be trifled with. He is not a maid or a butler waiting to do your will. God is God Almighty. He is the creator and the sustainer of all creation, including the heart that beats in your chest right now. He is the one who gives life and breath and everything else, and he is not a God to toy with. Do not trifle with God's grace. Part of the problem is that we as a community think of God only in black and white terms. You might know of Jessica Alba. She was interviewed in Vanity Fair, and they, they write this about her quoting her rather. She says, I was seeking a purpose, Alba says, of her years as a member of a conservative Christian youth group. Maybe a little bit like True North. She said, I wanted to exist for a reason. This lasted until she was 17 when she says she was turned off by the boundaries and the labels set by fellow churchgoers. That year, she attended an, uh, an acting workshop in Vermont and fell crazy in love with a cross-dressing ballet dancer who had a baby and was bisexual. I was like, there's just no way he's going to hell. Acting opened her to a new world of creative people and a community where she belonged. I felt like at the end of the day, God is love and everyone else is human. Alba says what a lot of us feel. At the end of the day, isn't God love? At the end of the day, isn't it God's decision to judge? At the end of the day, isn't it true that God's going to do what God wants to do, and it doesn't really matter what I do? And you know what? Who knows whether we're right or wrong about this? After all, this is an ancient book and an ancient text, and can we really know that it was translated correctly? And can we really trust that God spoke through this? And 
It seems pretty flimsy to me. At the end of the day, God is God and we're humans. There are so many problems with what she says, but I, 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 I want you to know that I resonate with that because I think that's how a lot of you feel. I think that she says what a lot of you are thinking, and I want you to realize that while it is true God is love, think about this with me, if God is love, that would mean, by necessity, there are some things that God must hate. Try to track with me here. If God is a God of love, and God loves righteousness, would that not suggest, by order of elimination here, that God would hate unrighteousness or wickedness. God is perfect and pure and holy, which I think most people would give lip service to at least. That would mean that God hates certain things. God cannot be thought of only in black and white terms of he's all love and he's no hate. He's all kindness and he's no justice. He is all, uh, you know, lollipops and gumdrops and no, you know, no harshness. God reveals himself as a God who, yes, is incredibly gracious and incredibly loving, but and there is a sharp side to his personhood and that he despises unrighteousness. Here's a few texts to point that out to. Psalm 97.10, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. The psalmist is calling us to be like him. To love him is to hate evil. Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Proverbs writer. And then you might think, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New? Paul says, let love be real. And what is real love? Real love is to hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love must be defined on God's terms, and love must by necessity, because God's love is pure and holy and righteous, be hating of evil. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Young person, you got to understand God is serious as a heart attack. Your life is precious and it is fleeting. And you might say to yourself, look, God doesn't care that I sin in this small way. I might be entertaining this little sin, but God does care. He cares about it so much that if you are a Christian, he was willing to put his son through torture for your sake. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to come back to you in a second. Again, my point is I want to encourage you not to trifle with God's grace. But why? Well, because grace is not an entitlement. Grace is not something God guarantees uh, you to have as some kind of innate right. In America, we love to talk about our rights, right to freedom of speech, right to bear arms, right to fill in the blank. And we keep adding rights and adding rights and adding rights. How long can that last? God only knows. But we love to talk about our rights in America. Here's what you do not have a right to. You do not have a right to God's grace. God's grace is not something you can put on the Bill of Rights and say, okay, uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, God's grace. It does not go there. Grace by its very nature is a gift. It is something that is unearned and thereby something that we cannot demand from God. It'd be something like this. Imagine you're a football player. Work with me, ladies. You're a football player and you are uh, in the middle of hell week. Okay? You're in the middle of hell week and that's where you do two-a-days. You do a, more, uh, a workout, a thing in the morning and one in the evening, and it's exhausting, and you're going to throw up all the time. It's part of, the, part of the deal. You show up to Wednesday of Hell Week, and the coach says, all right, gentlemen and ladies, because you're on the team too, all right, guys, today, instead of doing a workout, 
instead of doing two workouts, I brought the in and out truck. Eat as much as you want. Have a great time. No workouts today. I think you would be like, well, it's amazing. This is in and out. You guys pig out on in and out. You've been working out so hard. You, you love it. That happens on Wednesday. Things are normal back for Thursday and Friday. Imagine you go to practice again on next Wednesday, and the coach brings the in and out truck, and he says, fellas and fellettes, I've got an in and out truck for you again. Go for it. No, no practice today. And you start liking this. Like, man, this is amazing. Coach is loaded. Coach is loaded. This is amazing. So you, you start to ex expect a certain kind of response from him. So the next Wednesday, it happens again. Wednesday after, it happens again. And it happens for seven straight months. Imagine that. Seven straight months, free in and out on Wednesday instead of practice. But on the eighth month, on the first Wednesday, you show up to practice, and there's no in and out truck. In fact, the practice is twice as long. It pushes you hard and says, okay, you're cracking the whip. How crazy would it be for you and for the team to be like, this guy, where's our in and out? What kind of football team doesn't give you in and out on Wednesdays? A stupid football team and a stupid coach. I don't want to be part of this. How crazy and foolish would it be for us on the football team to shake our fist at the coach and say, this is awful. He should be giving us in and out right now. He shouldn't be running sprints across the field. This is stupid. You owe me, you owe me in and out, coach. Silly. But I think it makes my point, right? Everything that happened for the prior seven months is grace, his kindness. He didn't owe you in and out. He simply chose to do that as an act of kindness. And he probably spent thousands upon thousands to give you the in and out. But when you come to the eighth month on the first practice on that Wednesday, you, you should not be saying, you owe me this, coach. You should be saying, okay, well, things are back to normal, I guess. I'm really grateful for the last seven months. Here's where I'm going with that. When God shows you grace and kindness... It is not God saying, oh, well, there's Jimmy again. I owe him grace. I need to give him grace. God chooses to freely bestow it as a gift. We should never think of gifts as entitlements to what God owes us. Grace, by its very nature and definition, is voluntary, and God freely gives it. In fact, Exodus 33, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is why this is important. I want you to turn, if you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll get here in a couple months, I trust, but Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to skip on ahead so I can give you a sense of what happened in here. Grace isn't an entitlement, but it can be abused. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, that is, who rejects it, denies it, transgresses against it, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, set apart, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Grace is not an entitlement. 
You ought not to trifle with God's grace because even for Christians, there is a hard wall where God will say, that's enough. There is a place in time where God says, you are now shaking your fist at me. I'm going to respond in a way that you're not going to like. Picture this with me. My oldest son, Jacob, is getting pretty strong and fast. Don't tell him I told you that. I still want him to know that I'm faster and stronger. But imagine that you're walking outside in the Columbia Circle, and he sees that there's a car racing down the street. And because you have your, uh, your Beats by Dre with ANC, active noise canceling, you can't hear. You're in your own world. He sees you, and he rushes over to you, and he jumps and pushes you out of the way just as the car makes contact with his body. His body, because the car is going so fast, gets pretty beaten up. Car runs over him, tramples him. His blood is all over the street. Body parts flying everywhere. Like he is just a wreck. I run out there and I see what takes place and I, I notice what happens. And you, because you think, not a big deal, you go over to my son and kick him a little bit. You okay, buddy? walk all over his body. You might just step on his stomach a little bit just to see if he's doing okay. Slap him. Take his blood and just kind of seems like he's dead. I'm going to go back to your north. Walk back across the street. If I saw that and I saw the whole thing transpire, imagine what I might feel about that. I think I might be warranted a little anger, a little upsetness with you. You walk through the puddle of my son's blood. Don't call 911. Don't give him a second glance. Oh, okay, he did a nice thing for me. Great. I'm going to live my life. But as he languishes in that bloody pool, you walk away saying, well, whatever. This is not that different. In fact, it's far worse when we do that with Jesus. God the Father looks at his son Jesus and leaves him a bloody pulp for your sake, to see you saved. And when you shake your fist at him and you give in to sin over and over again, you live in sin because you're like, oh, no big deal, it's just sin, not a huge issue. Or if you're a non-Christian, you're saying, I'll become a Christian someday or I don't want to think about it, it's too much for me right now. I don't want to be, I don't want to be tangled up in religion, it's just not my thing. It's like you kicking the body of Jesus and just walking through his, his blood no big deal. It's just Jesus. It's just his blood. And besides, isn't God gracious and kind and loving after all? As you walk through the puddle of Jesus' blood, kicking it around and pretending like it means nothing, recognize that there is a God who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. A God who also says, the Lord will judge his people. See, this is some of the language here. We trample underfoot the Son of God. You see that? Trample underfoot the Son of God. Profaned the blood of the covenant, walking through his blood, not caring about how difficult it was for Jesus to do this, how incredible this was that he would do. And instead, what do you think is deserved by that person? The one who walks through his blood, tramples it, doesn't care. What is deserved by that person? Here's, what, here's something you should tremble at. Look, we don't ever want to outrage the spirit of grace. There is a spirit of God who can be outraged, made furious at our interaction with him. 
And this is what I mean when I say we should not trifle with God's grace. Because first of all, grace isn't an entitlement. It's something God gives to us as a gift. But also, God is zealous for his son's honor. If I saw you trampling my son's blood and it was not a big deal to you, imagine how God feels when he sees us treat sin in a low, like not a big deal kind of way. God cares, young person. Humble yourself before the Lord. Don't trifle with him. If you're living in sin right now, you need to recognize that God hates, hates, despises with the white hot passion sin in every form. You ought to hate it too. You ought to love Jesus so much you're willing to hate the things that he hates and reject those things. If you're a non-Christian, I need to warn you you might say to yourself, I have time to figure this out. Do you? Do you really? Because you've received God's patience to this point, do you assume that you'll receive God's patience in the next point? Do you believe that because God has been kind to you and has given you good things and has provided you with a home and a family and perhaps friends that love you and have brought you here, do you think that because God has been patient with you to this point that he's going to keep being patient with you? Do not presume upon his grace. Do not assume he owes it to you. He does not. Someday, God's good gifts will cease. Christian, I need you to understand that if you have been protected and covered by the blood of Christ, you are a Christian through and through. You put your full trust in him. That's awesome. Never take sin lightly. Never think that sin is not a big deal because here's the thing. For an unbeliever, there is eternal conscious torment that awaits them for those who reject Christ. For you, believer, God, because he's a good father, will discipline those whom he loves. Hebrews 12 promises this, and we're going to get there in a few months. Don't trifle with God's grace because grace isn't an entitlement. You're not owed it, and God is zealous for his son's honor, and God wants to see Christ's image formed in you. The main point then, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Therefore, and the therefore actually refers back to chapter 1, but it also looks forward to the verses 2, 3, and 4 that we just looked at. The message is superior. Uh, Christ is superior. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What have we heard? The message of salvation. The message of Christ. Lest we drift away from it. This is the main point. You can drift from something. It's a, it's, a, it's a nautical analogy. If you're not anchored to something, you drift. If you're not moving against the current, you're going to be caught up in the current and be pulled away. So the point here is, look, you have to fight to stay focused. You cannot just hope and just wish and just, may I hope it happens this way. If you're going to be a Christian, God calls us to pay close attention to what he said. Here's the way it works. Chapter one, Jesus is a superior revelation. The rest of chapter 1, Jesus is superior to the angels. Therefore, understand that the message, uh, that Jesus is, is the superior message and the method of salvation. The crescendo, pay close attention. Give it your full and focused attention. You can't be half Christian. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. I'm not saying you have to have your whole life together. What I am saying is that you are called as a Christian to give your best to Christ. And some days your best is better than others. We all have those days. But the point is to pay attention. Don't drift. 
You think about the dock. A boat is tied to the dock, right? So it doesn't drift away with the current. A boat is anchored to the dock so that it doesn't go anywhere. That's one good illustration. Again, this is a nautical analogy, but even better, uh, you need to think of yourself kind of like a fish, a salmon that swims upstream to mate. (laughs) And it's a life or death situation for them. They will literally kill themselves in order to make it to a place where they can successfully lay eggs. They mate, lay eggs, and then they die. This is what they do. And then the life, the life cycle starts over. The, the, the salmon go downstream, they go live their lives, and they go back upstream. They do the same thing over and over again. You have to think of yourself in this way. You are a fish. You must swim uphill. It's going to be really hard. But if you're not swimming uphill, you're going downhill. If you're not making progress forward, you're going backward. Because Christ and his message are superior, we must carefully attend to his words or suffer calamitous consequences. I put it like this in point number three. Look, if you're going to pay close attention to what his word says, I can think of no better way than to say it like this. Point number three, let's make a practice of meditation. Let's understand deeply what God's word says and put it into practice. That's the only way, young person, that you will ever do what Hebrews chapter two, verse one says, to pay close attention. Because if you're only paying superficial attention, you're just checking it off the box, you're never going to get there. And when I say meditation, you guys know I'm not talking about Eastern meditation, right? I'm not talking about going and getting the Calm app and doing five minutes of mindfulness. I'm saying instead of meditation with uh, emptying your brain, I'm saying instead exercising your brain and practicing a form of meditation, that is this, to speak with oneself, to murmur in a low voice, as is often done by those who are musing. And there's some of the Hebrew stuff that you don't need to know. But meditation from a biblical sense is not emptying, it's filling. Meditation from a biblical sense is not stopping the brain, it is activating it. Meditation in a biblical sense is like chewing the cud. A cow that chews the cud will chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it, send it down to one of its stomachs, bring it back, chew it again, send it back down to the stomach, bring it back again, chew it some more, and then bring it back. It's a a cycle. This is what you're called to do as a Christian when it comes to God's Word. This is how you pay close attention. This is how you grasp it, hold it, and not let it go. And the stakes are life and death. Spiritual life, spiritual death. So here's what Psalm chapter 1 says. Let me quickly walk you through this. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. I mean, I want you to pay attention to the counsel, their words, their encouragement, nor stands in the way of sinners, the direction, their path, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, hanging out where they are. And you'll notice the progression here, walking, standing, sitting. They're walking, they stand, they're in fellowship. Now they're sitting, they're making themselves at home. Instead, the blessed man, the one who is blessed, is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. It's their joy. It's their happiness. Now, I understand for some of you, it's hard to delight in the law of God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's hard. It's boring. I struggle to understand what it means. There are resources. Use them. Learn to love the Word of God. And get this. How do you learn to love? Well, part of it is that you meditate on it. You learn it. You study it. You think about it. You chew on it. How long? Day and night. That long. Every day of your life. He continues on. This blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water. There is a natural resource. They're always connected. They're always connected to a source of of energy and strength. Therefore, they yield fruit in their season. That's the blessed person. Their leaf doesn't wither. They're always spiritually vital. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked, those who don't love God's word, those who refuse to submit to him, They're not like this person. They're not like the tree up here. Instead, they're like chaff, fleeting, fickle. The wind drives them away. Therefore, 
Wicked will not stand in the judgment. God's going to cut them down. Sinners aren't going to be in the congregation of the righteous. They have no place there. They're not going to be in the place of happiness and joy. Instead, because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, they're going to be together, but the way of the wicked, they're going to perish. There is no hope for the wicked. The difference between the righteous and the wicked, part of that, meditation, a love for God's word, a focus on what is right, true, and good. Now, this is a matter of spiritual life and death. This is essentially God saying, look, here's how to put on your oxygen mask. Pay attention to me and live. Listen to my words and live. Reject my words and there's consequences. So let me encourage you really quickly then to get a 10. This is what our church uses to study and meditate upon scripture. Let me remind you what that is. I would love for you this week to practice tanning your Bible. Yes, I want you to read it, but even more, I want you to study it. To tan your Bible is to ask, first of all, what does this text mean to the audience at that point in time? You pick a text, pick a couple verses. Then you ask, what principles from this text apply all times and all generations? And then how do I apply this to my life? This is essentially tanning in a nutshell. I was going to walk you through it, but for the sake of time, I want to get you in your small groups to talk about this and also to put it into practice as soon as you can. I would love for you guys to take seriously the message of Christ and to say, tonight, we're going to do everything we can to give ourselves fully to the Word of God. Get a tan. Make a practice of meditation. Why? Well, because Christ's message is superior. We must carefully attend to his words or suffer calamitous consequences. When the captain comes on the intercom, I hope you listen. And I think tonight, our captain has given you some hard things to apply. And I know that. I know this message is a harder message. It sets the bar higher and it makes the stakes greater. I think that's the point of this text so tonight, I encourage you to spend some time interacting with it, making some godly commitments, and following through. You're about to go on a Thanksgiving break, which means you're going to have a little more time on your hands. There's no excuse for us. May we together pursue Christ and his message because he's worthy, he's superior, and to ignore it is foolishness at our own peril. 